Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the morality of everyday things. I'm Jacob. I'm Anthony. I mean, you've hopefully been here before. This is show <laughs> where we discuss everyday things and their morality. Yeah, actually, you may well not have. Yeah, it's a podcast where we discuss the uh, issues that may have approached you in your everyday life, and we try and equip you with moral frameworks and some good examples how you might uh, approach that and come to your own conclusion about how you feel about it. We always say it's not about telling you what to think. It's more about how to think, how to break down questions and, yeah, introducing nuance into interesting debates. <laughs> how to think what we think. <laughs> <laughs> One of us. As always, just a quick reminder, if you are a fan of the show, it's immensely helpful if you just leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I guess that requires that you have an Apple device. Mm. I personally am not a fan of Apple. But um, but if you're not, then follow us on Spotify or whatever platform you use. And uh, yeah, get in touch with us on social media. Yeah. Leave, leave comments. And tell one friend. Find a friend, tell them, hey, check out this uh, podcast. If nothing else, it'll let them think that you're intellectual. <laughs> um, so last week we took a, a very current affairs-y bend and discussed Joe Biden pulling out of Afghanistan and the limits of nation building, uh, just war theory, and when an individual can be held responsible for the actions generally and also particularly in the context of international affairs, which involves so many kind of layers and players, nice little rhyme there, and, you know, unpredictable outcomes. I, I think if you look at the history of the Middle East, it seems very obvious to look back over the course of like three, four decades and be like, well, this happened because of this thing that we did in the 80s. Mm. But um, you have to bear in mind when you were making those choices and you when people were making those choices in the 80s, maybe it wasn't quite as clear. Really, yeah. I'm blaming... Limited information. I'm blaming Bush Sr. and Bush Jr. <laughs> <laughs> so that episode was quite a doozy, which is a word I've never said before, but I thought I'd stick to the script there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was a fun one. This week, we're coming back to a less current affairs more more timeless and relatable question. One that the hosts of Top Gear have strong opinions on. I don't um, know if the American audience would get that. Top yeah. Gear is a car show. Yeah. <laughs> it did go over to America, didn't it, at some point? Oh, I they tried. I, in they fact, the Amazon know, Prime thing, right? I think Matt LeBlanc came over and was a yeah. host. So so hopefully they know that's Joey from Friends that you don't know. <laughs> uh, he's currently a host on it. So the question today, are you a bad person if you cycle through red lights? This to me is one I've been really excited to do because... In the vein of why we started this podcast, this is one of those things that we've been talking about a lot. I've been talking about a lot to everyone. I cycle almost every day that I'm in London. I do about 15k a day. No big deal, you know. <laughs> out there. Um, doesn't matter. Subtle, if it's, subtle flex. I know, I know. It doesn't matter if it's rainy or, or snowing. Even I've cycled in the snow here. I'm on my uh, my DOS wheels, my two wheels. Um, <laughs> two I mean, wheels good. Four yeah. wheels bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's an animal farm reference for those of you. Yeah. For those of you who are very cultured. I actually like it because it really incorporates a bunch of exercise in my day. One thing post COVID. Too Many people now working from home don't realize how much just normal everyday activity they've cut out by not mm. leaving their house. I say this to my brother all the time. Tino, if you're listening, go for some walks or something, man. <laughs> it, like Being in an apartment all day is not good. Anyway, it, it incorporates exercise into my day. And I also save a crazy amount of money. So for those who don't know, who, who live outside of London, it can cost like... $300 a month, 200 and something pounds a month to have a regular pass to use the uh, underground. Mm. Uh, or if you're paying by the day, it can be a couple quid, I think. It caps at seven pounds a day. Um, yeah, it's, it's not cheap. It's yeah, not cheap it's actually, sure. it's, you know, we were like, oh, TFL's great. But then if you ever look at your bank statement, it's like, wow, that actually was really expensive. So yeah. cycling good and also great for the environment. I'm such a, oh, speaking of, check out treepoints.green. <laughs> if you want to offset your carbon footprint, plant trees, etc. That's that's uh, something or, we do. We'll just learn more about climate change, for sure. Yeah. Um, cool. So, so, apart from that little introduction on what a great guy you are, right? yeah. I do know from experience that you have a pretty controversial view on this question, because uh, <laughs> in true Anthony fashion, you don't just run through the occasional red light and keep it to yourself. Like a normal human being, 
who experiences shame <laughs> and doesn't like to be thought of as an idiot. No, I've heard you openly advocate going through red lights, sometimes being the safest course of action. Didn't you get stopped by policemen once? I did. Okay, so I mentioned earlier that I save a ton of money by cycling, okay? And, you know, as you've probably worked out from what we've said so far, I regularly go through red lights and we'll go through the reasons why I think that is the case, um, why, why that's actually a reasonable thing to do. But recently, for the first time in about five years, I did in fact get stopped by a policeman for going through a red light. And he says, oh, you know, did you see that there was a red light? And I say, oh, you know, sorry, I was just looking to see if it was safe, so I didn't notice it was a red light. And this was the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, now remember in my head, I've rationalized this as I've saved thousands of pounds by not taking the underground, right? So I'm I, like, a fine in five years for me is fine. And he says to me, you know that that's like a hundred dollar fine. And I said to him, do you take card? <laughs> uh, which actually set him back so much. Like, because he, he literally was like, this guy does not, like, this isn't changing his view at all. He doesn't care. So he, he actually ended up just saying, look, be careful. His whole thing, which was really weird, was like, hey, a man in a white van, get him on the wrong day, uh, and he'll just bash you. And I was like, Gee, there are serial killer van drivers around <laughs> just bashing cyclists to annoy them. Because they sad. Yeah, so the road rage is definitely a thing. Though, yeah. Right? Interesting thing for you, and this will kind of relate to the, we'll mention it again later when we're talking about laws what should be the laws etc i believe in 2017 tfl or the london police released that they gave two and a half thousand red light violations or something right mm. now for yeah, anyone who lives yeah anyone who lives in london is going to appreciate that is a ridiculously small amount it's tiny there are probably hundreds of thousands of red light violations a day so to catch two and a half thousand people over the course of a year is you know the police clearly don't care about this. Like, mm -hmm, it has mm -hmm. to be... I, and I, I have personally, you know, you modulate your behavior, you see police, you don't do it, but, like, if you generally do it in front of police, they don't really care. I guess unless you're reckless. We're going to come to this. I got told off by a policeman for that once, actually. This was a bit stupid. Yeah. But I, you know, uh, and we'll talk about this, but you yeah. know when it's pedestrian crossing? Yeah, yeah. So as a bike, you can kind of behave almost as if you're a pedestrian. Like in, in theory, you could hop off your bike and wheel it and then yeah. you are a pedestrian. You literally are a pedestrian. So, so that's kind of what I did without the hopping off part. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a policeman there, but I was literally, I like slowed down to the point I was just like rolling at the same yeah. pace as the pedestrians. And, and we do know that the, the definition of pedestrian is uh rolling at a slow pace <laughs> anyway, i was like in front of a police car really <laughs> and i just smiled and was like <laughs> smile and wave boys uh, but yeah he didn't do lag. anything he didn't do anything he just laughed anyway well he didn't laugh i laughed <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't give you a ticket or anything no yeah. no fortunately anyway back to the question um i stand by the idea that going through red lights can sometimes be the best course of action and there's a few dimensions to this uh, including, I love this, some arguments that this could be one of those like amazingly brilliant, unintuitive economic outcomes, right? The kind of stuff that behavioral economists love and, and all of that. And the free economics um, guys. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, here's a really good example of such an outcome. Did you ever hear about the introduction of helmet laws in Australia making cycling less safe? No, why? So what actually happened was the introduction of mandatory helmet laws meant that for whatever reason in Australia, I don't know why it's very reasonable to wear a helmet, there was such a drop-off in the number of people who were cycling that cars actually became less conscious of being safe around cyclists. Oh, they, they, they were, they were less, less to be aware of. Yes, right? they were less to be aware, aware of. And so the result was that actually fewer people cycled and it actually became more dangerous for those who did, which is a great example of like, you think that like it seems so obvious that that law is mm. a good thing, but actually it's an unintuitively bad economic outcome. And I think every economist just, just loves the opportunity to explain crazy or unexpected behavior in some sort of graceful and coherent model. 
So I'm, you know, I'm going to put forward my own model. I'd like to call it the Anthony effect. There's probably a better name. And we'll, 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 again, we'll come to that to explain why cyclists skip red lights or why it's not so bad that they do. <laughs> this, is, this is very grandiose of you. And we'll see if your model sticks. But for now, let's stay on track and we'll break down the question a little bit. So I don't think the specifics of cycling through red lights is particularly difficult to comprehend unless you're listening from somewhere where red lights don't exist. So... A boat. (laughs) (laughs) All those people in the high seas. (laughs) seas, Thank you for downloading this podcast. How did you do it? But red light violations, in the spirit of this question, it's not specifically about cycling through red lights. As always, we've asked one kind of specific question, but the point is it generalizes to a bigger issue. And in this case, that's general traffic violations, not even just cycling traffic violations necessarily. I mean, it could be cycling on pavements, going the wrong yeah. way down the road and stuff, but I guess this could apply to cars. A good a good one in the US, this isn't the law here, but it could apply to jaywalking as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah which I is technically that. technically illegal. Indeed. Jaywalking. For those who don't for those who don't know and, and that's not the law here in, in the UK by the way. Mm. I believe it is in Germany though. Oh, I remember is it? well I remember being on a German exchange and, and just wandering across the road and they're like, no, don't they, do that. No, they just they just they just really like rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, jaywalking is, is basically crossing anywhere that's not a designated crossing. Yes. Which like my god, if I did that if if I didn't do that in London, it would be so much slower. But yeah, the, the point is we're looking at traffic violations, examples of breaking traffic laws more generally. And so the question is whether breaking traffic laws in the specific context you know in this case we're talking about being a cyclist we've now inadvertently extended it to pedestrians as well yeah, I, I think it fits. but fine yeah we, let's, I, I let's think, talk about think, traffic laws more widely yeah uh well specifically in the context of not being a motor vehicle because i think a lot of there's a lot of crossover that's relevant but whether breaking those laws makes you a bad person bad person we've discussed before you can, you can get quite deep on the difference between being a bad person or doing something wrong or mm-hmm. or whether the concept of someone as a bad person is redundant in mm-hmm. itself or is it a bad action rather? yeah yeah, yeah. But, you know, we'll just take it to mean that, you know, are you being inconsiderate or selfish? You know, it's a colloquial understanding of the term bad person. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you doing th- something that it's generally agreed you shouldn't be doing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, so, it's a big assumption in itself. But the crux of this question seems to be the heuristic that following laws is generally good and breaking laws is generally bad. So cyclists breaking the law by skipping reds, in theory, would make them bad people, if you, if you go by that assumption. And I think a secondary assumption is that people are skipping reds purely because they're being inconsiderate, not for any reasonable purpose, but... We might discuss why that, that, yeah, yeah, that's, why that's not true. So at a high level, why it may not be bad can be explained by a few reasons. And we'll kind of relate this to some philosophical perspectives. And, and hereby justify your yeah. controversial <laughs> position. <laughs> I've decided what I'd like the outcome to be. <laughs> the, that's the, the most logically and uh, rationally honest. No, no. Uh, it may actually be safer for the cyclist both for some practical reasons and some psychological mm-hmm. ones. And it, it may be indifferent to everyone else or safe for everyone else. We'll, we'll, we'll come to that. Secondly, we can consider whether it's more important to obey the laws as written or obey the spirit of the laws. So mm-hmm. in this case, I, I suppose the spirit of the law is for people to be safe. And finally, we can consider whether, and this is the part I was mentioning when you said, oh, this carries over to pedestrians, whether you being on a bike, a, a small vehicle that poses minimal risk to others, same with being a pedestrian, obeying laws that are designed for motor vehicles actually may you know, substantially alter Mm. the morality of it, right? Like, you are not introducing the same external risks to other people. Well, I've I've Mm -hmm. kind of given the answer there but um <laughs> but, you know can can that can that actually substantially change the morality of whether you should follow that rule at all mm. and we'll synthesize some of these arguments come to a conclusion on how dangerous it is to the cyclists and others and whether it alters the morality of it let's start with a quick rundown on some key moral perspectives so the first and most relevant consideration will be consequentialist uh, and a quick reminder on that Consequentialism is that the outcomes of the actions will determine whether or not the action was bad or good. Mm -hmm. So importantly, this means that evidence of changes to the relative safety of cyclists and other vehicles 
those are key. It's it's basically it's yeah. evidence based versus your baseline assumptions. Exactly. So if going through reds is safer and doesn't hugely put others at risk, then actually going through reds might not be a bad thing at all. Another key perspective will be deontological, and this is a school of thought that basically says you know you find rules, you generalize them, and and it's uh, morality is determined in in, in the yeah. rules themselves. It, consequences are irrelevant. Yeah. So then really the only out clause there is whether the law is not falling in line with a moral rule. Yeah, exactly. It's basically saying, is the law moral or is it not? Does the rule actually, in this case, apply morally? So the arguments there are going to be less about the actual data and more whether exactly those laws should really be the laws at all. Yeah. Right. So so consequentialism, like we said, we're going to look at actual data to see if it's safe. And one other thing worth mentioning is that in different strands of consequentialism, we've mentioned before in other episodes, listen to other episodes if you haven't, um, <laughs> that some consequentialists, particularly John Stuart Mill, who has quite a high level perspective, you know, his utilitarian conception of consequentialism, you know, he actually manages to kind of pull in some rules based things, basically by thinking about mid to long term optimization. So, you know, he'll consider you know, not just kind of like at a very base level, you know, in the next, you know, in crossing this light, uh, will I cause an accident? You know, am I uh, risking anyone else, etc. He kind of takes a more long term perspective, like, okay, am I undermining a norm, mm. which will in the long term cause more people harm? Uh, you know, the norm of obeying the law, the norm of obeying the specific law, etc. So that's one of the things that we will consider. For the deontological perspective, we'll look at the idea of following the spirit of the law versus the law as written. And like we said, you know, it is the the risk balance changed versus a motor vehicle. Okay, let's start with the first point then. Could it be that going through red lights is actually safer for cyclists? So this is one I've heard you say a number of times. Basically, you suspected that the biggest danger to cyclists was in fact cycling alongside in-lane traffic. Like that was what we thought most accidents probably happened in. A key argument you've therefore made for skipping red lights is that you're building distance from your in-lane traffic. Now, this was just a hunch, and it wouldn't be good enough of us to just say that's probably the case and accept it as that. (laughs) So our production assistant, Martha Caddick, went away and looked at some of the data. Thank you, Martha. And, drum roll, it looks like you might actually be right. (laughs) Jake, when am I ever wrong? Oh, man, this is is really annoying. (laughs) Yeah. But yes, do you know the single most common type of cyclist fatality that occurs in London? Firstly, I'd like to bask in the fact that I was right. Never (laughs) never doubt my hunches. I have have an idea, but go on. So, according to a study by TfL, UCL, and Loughborough University, it's when an oversized vehicle, like a truck or a bus, turns left or moves into the left lane and just crushes a cyclist. Ooh, crushes is a horrible word there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the majority of collisions, in fact, happen at junctions. Nearly half of crashes overall are with HGVs, so heavy goods vehicles. And I suppose it's probably because they have like blind spots, worse visibility, and they're higher up, cyclists are lower down. Mm. Another common one is a vehicle running into the rear of a bike. Uh, and I guess this could just be because bikes are slower off the mark from a junction than, yep. than vehicles are. I know you've seen Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I hope that people have seen Brooklyn Nine-Nine, otherwise this will fall on deaf ears. Vindication! (laughs) Please just Google Brooklyn Nine-Nine Vindication if you haven't. Captain Holt. Yeah, Captain Holt. Anyway, uh, I mean, from a personal perspective, and I think anyone who's cycled in a big city, I've definitely experienced that really horrible sensation where you're pulling off from a junction and cars are inches away from you and they're actually whizzing past you. There's this sense of like, okay, if I suddenly move either way and someone clips me, Mm. I'm very likely to fall over and immediately get run over. You know, I would be toast. Uh, (laughs) I always like to imagine that if you did get hit by a bus, you'd at least 
bounce and there'd be enough space for them to not run you over. <laughs> Maybe because it'd just be particularly horrible to be run over by a bus. I'm not going to test this theory for myself, how bouncy a bus actually is. <laughs> they don't look particularly bouncy, do they? No, um, no, they're, they're, but they're like, very rigid, actually. Yeah, no, I agree. I think uh, something I've experienced as well is just, uh, you know, you do feel like it's it's fine margins. And, and, mm. and it's definitely, as you say, I think the, the times you experience that most are... Mm within lane traffic or mm. at junctions yep. and actually cycling when you've got distance from other vehicles cycling is really pleasant yep. like it's and i think actually part of the build-up to this is this idea we know we know so much about motor vehicles and their accidents and i think the most common fatal accident in a motor vehicle is collision at a junction because the combination of someone you know being a little bit late one way mm. and a little bit early the other way and bang Right. Mm -hmm. So we, we have this idea that like, oh, junctions, we just apply the same to cyclists and be like, don't go through junctions. You're going to cause a collision. Mm -hmm. When actually as a cyclist, like one, you know, if that collision happened, it's just the cyclist who's going to be hurt, really. And two, it ignores the fact that actually leaving a junction legally as a cyclist is quite dangerous. So some other interesting facts for you. The slower the road, the more likely accidents were, i.e. the more congested the road. They estimate, they being, I guess, people who do studies and stuff, they <laughs> estimate that a sixth of cyclists skip reds. Uh, so, yeah, one in six people, which actually, I mean, from what I've seen, cycling around London seems actually a little bit low, but yep. uh, but we'll take that as, uh, as given. Another random one, it's not that random, I suppose, 81% of cycling casualties were men based on ONS data from 2016. And I guess the way that seems consistent is with the body of studies that suggest men are more risk-seeking. Yeah, which we also see in investments, career choices, things like that. Not to gender stereotype. <laughs> Let's quickly move on. <laughs> anyway, question. Thoughts on cyclists. You've mentioned this earlier in your little anecdote, but you know, generally, what are your thoughts on cyclists behaving as pseudo-pedestrians at major junctions? Yeah, I, well, I'm, I'm less bullish than you on the, on the sort of skipping red light behavior, but I do think there's a couple of times where if a light is completely empty, like it's a pedestrian light's gone off, there's no pedestrians, cars are stopped, mm -hmm. it's completely safe for me to continue. I'll do that. The other mm. junctions I'll do that are intersections where there's green lights, pedestrians going, and I'm like, I'm going to behave as a pedestrian here. Yeah, yeah. As in, like, as in, like the the pedestrians are not crossing your way, or maybe yeah. there happen to be none, but, but they can, are crossing yeah, in the you, same direction. They're, they're crossing parallel, or even if they are crossing across, and you can weave and like literally yeah. sometimes just to make the point, I'll hop off the bike and wheel it because mm. then I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I am mm. literally, I'm literally behaving as a pedestrian. But it does give you that time advantage. You get ahead. Yeah. One that saves time, but two, as you say, I think it, it genuinely feels safer when you can sort of yeah. pull further ahead. Of I mean, so I would, I would I definitely, that. yeah, I would definitely say when it's pedestrian greens, but there are either very few pedestrians or literally no pedestrians. And, you know, when I say very few, like few enough that you can very confidently, like, you know, be two mm. meters from anyone. Like it actually really, like, one thing that really annoys me is when pedestrians are like, why are you going through? Again, this is kind of law is written versus law in the spirit. Like there is no danger. I am like mm. two meters away from you. The worst thing is when you get a really stubborn pedestrian who actually like tries to get in the way to try and make a, <laughs> to try and make a point. And it's like, oh you're actually, you're actually that. making it dangerous now. <laughs> and like, that's, when you, that's when you go Grand Theft Auto and mow them down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's one of my main skipping tactics. And honestly, the other other is that I know my route really well and there are some junctions I don't know if this is like all junctions and it's an English thing but there are some junctions where I guess for safety to avoid those kind of car and car collisions we're talking about there's a quite a few seconds of break between one direction and another direction so you have about five seconds where no one's moving and it's you know it's pretty reasonable to just nip through at that point or you know it can also be that it's just a pure red but you're looking around and there's no one there, you know, especially if you're, in my case, commuting a relatively quiet route at about 9.30 a.m. So most people are either 
going in later or going in earlier. Mm. Yeah. There's a great Telegraph piece on this. Uh, and the author does indeed sort of back that and suggest it's safer if cyclists do cross with pedestrians. No less because a cyclist colliding with a pedestrian is much less dangerous than anyone else colliding with like a motor vehicle or HGV. And I guess the sort of counter to this is there are some tragic examples of people having accidents basically because they did follow the rules and didn't pull away from HGVs that then crushed them as soon as the traffic moved. Uh, and I think the famous case of this in London was a woman called Emma Fowl. Yep. Yeah. yeah, it was uh, Martha found that for us. Very sad. Basically, she followed the rules and there was it was kind of immediately trapped and crushed. Like mm. the guy, anyway, that's a bit sad. Also, another interesting thing: listen to a great economics podcast on roundabouts. Right? Mm. Can I just say this is really boring, but I love roundabouts. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> roundabouts are just so Dude, efficient. This I is, think they're this my is... favorite kind of junction, which well, is so, again so, a really boring. Thing so to this say. is this is but... the interesting thing for you. A bunch of stats that I learned on this thing. One, roundabouts cause more collisions, but less deadly collisions. So they cause more minor bumps. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is that people have to actually like look around, slow down, interact with each other. Mm-hmm. So it actually makes it safer. They are on average more efficient, but actually less efficient during peak hours. Oh, really? Yeah. The Is problem... that if one flow of traffic dominates or something? Or... Oh, it's just that it's just that actually holding people and letting people go, mm. uh, and then they can move at a you know a, a more normal speed rather than having to slow down at every junction mm. very considerably, is fast during peak hours. The problem is, you know, as ever, anyone who's driven has experienced and probably felt this frustration, if you get to a junction and it's not peak hours. It'll often be like, there is no need for me to be waiting, mm. right? But I don't want to go through a red in case there's a camera or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and a traffic uh, roundabout doesn't have that issue. So they're actually, you know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest they're safer in terms of actual fatalities, not necessarily in terms of actual like minor bumps, and that they're on average more efficient. There's also, uh, I think they have these in, they, they're traveling in a city in the UK, and I think they have it in, in Holland as well. Just unguided what is what is unguided like there's no marking there's no marking it's just a junction and the idea is that like a roundabout because of that setup you just have to (laughs) the point is people are not idiots right like you don't see an unguided junction say great i'm gonna bomb through it at 60 miles an hour (laughs) right what happens is people slow down and are forced to engage with the people around them mm. and kind of carefully negotiate their way through that junction. So is it, it literally it, like a crossroads sort of thing? Or crossroads, what? no yeah. markings. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, people cross, cars cross, and the point is that everyone basically has to kind of rationalize and be more careful. Interesting. Not quite the same thing, but did you hear about the introduction of the Idaho stop? Uh, I did because I read the notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, for you listeners who haven't, in Idaho in 1982, they introduced this thing called the Idaho stop, which allowed cyclists to make an unobstructed right turn. And in the UK, I guess that'll be a left turn. Yeah. So that's um, when you come to a junction. If you imagine, we'll, we'll go with the American example, because I think most of our listeners will be outside the UK, so either European or American. When you come to a junction, and you want to do the immediate right, mm-hmm. you're not actually having to cross any oncoming lanes. You just have to look to your left mm-hmm. and see if the see if there's space for you to kind of nip in. Mm. Right? But sorry, so they introduced yeah, that. So they introduced that and it led to a 15% reduction in injuries. So yeah, as you said, it basically gives cyclists the right in, circ- in certain circumstances to ignore a red and use their judgment. And kind of like you were saying with unguided junctions and other things, there's, I mean, very clear evidence in this case that it actually makes things uh, safer. So now we come to, speaking of using judgment, a moment <laughs> that I've been dreading this episode. Would you care to explain for us? what the Anthony effect is. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I will explain the Anthony, Anthony effect for going through red lights. I'll be honest, it's probably described better as the reverse Peltzman effect, if I'm honest with you. More catchy as well, sounds cool. And it's, it's probably easiest to start by describing what the normal Peltzman effect is, right? So the Peltzman effect is basically the idea that people have a level of risk that they're actually comfortable with, right? So when you change the price of risk by, for example, making things safer, that just allows people to compensate by behaving more dangerously. 
right? So that they meet their like level of risk that they're comfortable with. Classic example that actually coined the name itself from Peltzman is the study he had where he found that when you made cars safer by adding seatbelts, people actually drove faster, cancelling out at least some of the safety benefits. So I call this an inverse Peltzman because instead of making things safer, we're making things more dangerous. And actually the response from people is that they're going to be much more careful. Going through a red light is more dangerous, so you do it carefully. It's not necessarily the case that these outcomes are proportionate. It could be in his classic example of seatbelts, you know, maybe people go faster, but it's not enough to overcome the safety benefit of the seatbelt. In this case, it could be that people overcompensate, right? I certainly find, from my perspective, I'm a big believer in this. Going through reds forces me to actually look when it's safe to go rather than when it's legal. And on that point, uh, this is something I feel very strongly on and I always bring up. The only accidents I've personally ever had cycling in London were when I was just flying through a green. And I was, you know, I was like, it's a green. It's, it's my right away. Like, why would I look around and make sure it's safe? Someone else made a mistake and hit me. Mm. Right. Mm. That's the only time. So actually, that could be an example of <laughs> to, take, to turn that into Peltzman effect. Using traffic light systems to, to make people, you know, follow rules or whatever actually means that people switch off and don't look whether it's safe. Mm. Right. Uh, and, you know, like we were saying with these unguided junctions, like we're saying with roundabouts and like we're saying with red lights, when you make it clear to people that you are going to enter a dangerous situation, they actually then use judgment and are careful and can compensate for that. Nice. So it's, it's kind of a psychological perspective, right? Yeah. And yeah, as you say, I mean, it's uh, we got Martha to look into this as well. And it, <laughs> it is somewhat backed up. Uh, there was a Taiwanese study uh, which was titled Cyclist Red Light Running Behaviors, an Examination of Risk-Taking, Opportunistic, and Law-Obeying Behaviors. Super catchy. They looked mm. at red light violations, and I'm not going to try and pronounce the names of where that took place. My God. Oh, uh, no, those are the researchers. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, sorry, they're, they're difficult names to pronounce. The, the title is enough. Uh, the um, title's enough. Uh, they set up cameras at some junctions in Taiwan. Long story short, categorized cyclists as law-obeying, opportunistic, and risk-taking. So opportunistic, I think, in this case, is when people were crossing red light safety. Law-obeying is obviously when they weren't uh, crossing red yeah. lights. So yeah, I think I didn't read in depth the study myself, but opportunistic is like, okay, I'll do it when it's reasonably safe to do so. Mm-hmm. Risk-taking sounds like it was just like yeah. a bit Oof, reckless. Go through. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was... <laughs> nice sound effect. Yeah, they ba- <laughs> basically called people who crossed when it was like, for example, so congested that there wasn't movement or mm-hmm. when there were no other cars around. When those people went through the junction, they, they called it opportunistic. And the risk takers, like you said, is just people flying through, uh, expecting others to accommodate them. To be fair, I think it's worth noting, you know, for our listener base, it sounds like a scene that, you know, is much more common outside of the streets of London or New York or something. I'm really imagining more like, you know, Southeast Asia. Mm. You, you, you've been and you, you told yeah. me about crossing the street in Cambodia, right? Yeah, it's pretty impossible. <laughs> yeah. Everyone loves using their horns as well. Yes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> kind of like saying hello. Yeah, but like it's, it's just constant flow of people yeah, kind of yeah, negotiating stuff together, right? It's, it's pretty crazy. Anyway, the point we wanted to draw here was that they did find that people skipped more red lights when traffic was heavily congested and hence there were more safe gaps, which suggests, like we were saying above, Cyclists are actually scanning and assessing if it's safe to cross as opposed to them being a small group of like, you know, literally just blindly uh, powering through red lights, not yeah. really which being is, reckless, which, which is I think is you, the stereotype. Right? Yeah, if you think about, for example, the way that Top Gear does it, they're like, there's a bunch of idiots on bike who, bikes who expect everyone else to just yeah. bend around them. And it's like, no, what's actually happening is there's a bunch of reasonable people with some risk tolerance who are getting to junctions and checking whether it's safe enough for them to feel like they can cross. One of my favorite moments in Top Gear was when they um, they had a race across London and Hammond took the bike and James May took the car and clocked and I think it was on a boat. Yeah. <laughs> the stick on public transport as well. And God, those uh, things are so staged and yet they're so entertaining. They're so good. Yeah. Uh, and Hammond actually won and I can't remember where James May came. He might even have lost and then they were just like, James, the car lost to the bike. You've ruined Top Gear. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> another interesting one, we we're talking about risky behavior. Uh, they didn't do gender, but as we said, most fatalities on bikes are men. The absence of a helmet was highly correlated with the probability of being either opportunistic or uh, a risk taker. Is that which... like a heightened Anthony effect? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, it, it makes sense. You know, it's a clear indication that they were willing to take more risk. Mm -hmm. Some people, you know, perhaps are, are more law-abiding or have a very low risk tolerance, hence mm -hmm. never crossed and wear a helmet. But thinking about the Peltzman effect, it then stands to reason that if you gave someone who was opportunistic or a red light crosser without helmets a helmet, they would cross even more often, mm. right? Probably. Mm -hmm. Another one, e-bikes were also associated with more red light crossing behavior. Mm. Okay, my conjecture, if you have an e-bike, more likely to be a food delivery person. If you're a food delivery person, you have an incentive to go as quickly as possible. You always see that in London. You always yeah. see the Just Eat and the delivery guys. Oh man, they're, like... they're actually, they're the most dangerous because they're yeah. also like a normal cyclist, nipping between traffic, which means yeah. they're much more likely to clip me, a cyclist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've given some logical and psychological arguments that seem to suggest that actually crossing a red light could maybe be safer for the cyclist. But what about everyone else? The same Taiwanese study did find that there were 26 accidents during the highly congested peak times when red light violations were more frequent versus 11 during off-peak. But we don't have a good sense of whether busier periods would have expected more accidents anyway. Uh, maybe you have to do a kind of like per capita style. Yeah, thing, or, right? or like, like per, or per person crossing, right? Judge flows. They also note in their abstract that, quote, literature suggested that bicyclist red light violations tend not to cause accidents, end quote. But unhelpfully, they didn't really link any of that literature that they referred to. Yeah. Imagine that being in the niche of like red light, light studies and you can just say the literature says it. And everyone's, like, <laughs> everyone's like, of course the literature says this. We, we're all part of literature. Anyway, right. So it, it seems from a consequentialist perspective, there's actually reasonable grounds to say you're not really a bad person if you go through red lights. As long as you're doing it reasonably, weighing up risk and considering other people's risk, mm -hmm. uh, there's definitely room to go through red lights. Let's consider whether there even should be a law and the law as is moral seem to be a bit out of sync here. So we're moving to the ontological perspective. Exactly, yeah. Good signposting. That was consequentialism. Now we look at the deontological argument. And here, I guess the answer breaks down as follows. If you believe the law is fair, then to break it, to commit a red light violation, makes you a bad person because you're, you're breaking the rules. However, if you don't feel like the rules apply, then you're not a bad person. And so mm. that's the question we now need to answer. Yeah. So generally, when people talk about the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law, the general sense is that honoring the spirit is preferable to honoring the letter. I think that's fair to say. I think so. Yeah. People, you know, the law is an imperfect mechanism that's trying to model the spirit. It's just that sometimes it's easier to put clearer rules than, uh, you know, perfectly carry a, every caveat and similar. Yeah, this is a big question during COVID, right? Because we yeah. had really niche laws, like six people, two meters distance on a park bench. Mm. Like it got it got super yeah. granular. Like to obviously the, the like... difference between six and seven didn't matter. The point was that we generally wanted fewer people. Exactly. But people did get really pedantic about the letter of the law, which is, which exactly. is funny, I guess. Uh, and, and I think there's, there's also a sense in which honoring the letter can be seen as gaming the system. You know, you can certainly find loopholes and stuff, for mm. example. Sometimes that can be clever. Sometimes it's sneaky. It's often portrayed as negative. A lot of um, tax avoidance, I think, kind of fits into <laughs> yeah, this. Very much. And there's a strange sort of backwards thing where it's like, rather than thinking like the law is an imperfect model of how we try to do morality, people will often say, I'm not breaking the law, so I'm not doing anything wrong. Mm. <laughs> it's like, okay. The spirit is, you know, how the authors intended a law to be read and, you know, Clearly, setting up a company in the Cayman Islands is not <laughs> yeah. in the spirit of uh, tax avoidance laws. No, I, th I think you've nailed that point. A couple of classic examples on both sides. Do you know The Merchant of Venice? Do you remember Shakespeare's play? Yeah. There's a whole thing about Shylock and the pound of flesh. And I can't remember the details of the play. But he, he basically, he, he has to give up a pound of flesh at the end and it's all pretty nasty because he's done something wrong yeah they get out of it by saying you can have the pound of flesh as long as you don't draw blood because there was no reference to blood in the law or something it was very much a case of like trying to construe letter of the law um, right, right right so in the end they did they couldn't take it because they couldn't remove the flesh without removing blood exactly which exactly. oh i mean gee, come on this 
That's <laughs> contrived. Uh, <laughs> another, contrived. An, another one we mentioned before is the Italian rugby example. Yes. But they worked out a loophole where, like, it's a long story, but basically they just, for those who know rugby, when there's a tackle, both sides will kind of engage over the ball. It's mm. called a ruck. And then when there's a ruck, like football, you're not, like, the opposing team is not allowed to pass the line of the ruck. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so what they would do is, you know, they'd look like they're about to engage in a ruck. The other team would come over the ball. They wouldn't engage, which means there's no ruck form, so there's no offside line. Mm. And then their players would just come behind the ruck and wait and be like, <laughs> come on, try pass the ball. Where are you going to go? <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a good example of like, you know, some people thought it was clever, but most people were like, okay, like this is clearly you are not playing rugby as it's intended to be played. Yeah, which is the key thing. We talk more about that in our episode on sports and, and gender in sports as well. So yep. go check that one out. So in the case of traffic laws, it's pretty clear that the spirit of the law is about safety, right? Uh, laws are designed to keep road users safe. The challenge in the case of cyclists, as discussed already, is that a lot of specific laws were designed with vehicles rather than cyclists in mind. Uh, motor vehicles, larger vehicles. So this creates opportunities for cyclists to behave in ways that might make their journey safer, but which contradict the letter of the law. And the challenge then becomes how do you generalize or universalize this behavior? I think one thing that we said earlier that's worth bearing in mind is that in some sense, a cyclist is kind of a pseudo-pedestrian. Mm. You can, yeah, you can really alternate between being a pedestrian or a vehicle, for yeah. sure. Keyword you just used was universalize, and I think that segues very neatly into the categorical imperative. And we talked about that before, but to quickly explain, that was uh, Kant's sort of model of deontology in which he's basically saying the way to form a rule is it has to be universalizable, i.e. could the same rule apply to everyone? If everyone followed it, would it still make sense? And within that sort of framework, you have to treat people as means. Uh, sorry, treat people as ends, <laughs> not exactly means to an ends. Yeah. So every, <laughs> every single person, the justification for them doing stuff cannot be that, oh, it helps achieve some other thing in the future. It has to be in consideration of them as ends in themselves. Exactly. And then the question here is, is there a limit to that? Like, might a better rule, rather than the specific laws themselves, might the better rule just to be about safety in general? And instead of breaking down road safety into sort of myriad different individual yep. cases, whatever it was just the universal rule was just like drive safely or, or, yeah. or conduct yourself yeah. safely. I think the point here is that an assumption would be that, oh, clearly following traffic laws is a universalizable rule, right? Mm -hmm. So clearly that should be a rule. But the point we're saying is that maybe actually, you know, the rule should be more pared down to drive safely or drive mm. safely, like use the road systems that we have in a way that's considered of other people and safe, which actually allows a bit more freedom. So I think that it's it, it's kind of like the synthesis of, of Kant uh, where like, you know, if we just had the requirement that people universalize rules, maybe you could actually universalize kind of arbitrary numbers of rules that are in some cases more restrictive than other mm. perspectives might be happy with. If you take Mills's harm principle, which is that basically laws are only acceptable insofar as the restriction on people's freedoms is less than the benefit that it's giving people. Mm -hmm. um, you might want a more tapered down version, like where I just said, oh, actually, you just want people to drive safely as opposed to you want people to necessarily follow every rule as it's written. And it really brings me back to that example of junctions where there are no rules or mm. roundabouts where it's, it's reliant on you negotiating with other people as opposed to there necessarily being super clear rules. Did you know, actually, roundabouts is um, an example of a junction that AI vehicles or autonomous vehicles really struggle with <laughs> i could imagine yeah because because actually if you just follow the rules give way to the right uh, you know stay there etc etc there needs to be a bit of give and take otherwise you could be stuck forever yeah you generally can you have to yeah. be you have to be quite smart about how you do it and it's interesting because i think to anyone who's listening who kind of feels any sense of disagreement and they're just like but you know this would be chaos this yeah would, this if everyone was right. just running through red lights but you can always find counter examples to any of this i mean even in the case of cars if you're stuck inside like a temporary red light and you start to suspect that it's not working yeah but if you universalize like you must always stop at red lights what about broken red lights what, you know, yeah, yeah. maybe a silly example but you, yeah. you, you can always find cases where actually yeah. that rule doesn't 
100% yeah. apply. And, and I that's think, my point. And I think the other thing is, on this kind of idea of like the, the, the assumption like, well, if everyone didn't follow the rules, it'd be chaos. I think in reality, it's just ignorant of reality. In, in reality, it's ignorant. Yeah. Like we, we know that there's there's much more likely, and and I say this because it is the case that there's an equilibrium where there's a bunch of people with different risk appetites. There's a you know a bunch of junctions that have varying levels of risk, and there's kind of a limit to how many people are willing to go. And the fact that some people go doesn't mean that there's going to be this inevitable avalanche of like, well, if they're going, I'm going, and then suddenly everyone's going, and suddenly it doesn't work um, because obviously in reality. Even going through red lights for cyclists wouldn't work if, you know, every other direction there were also other cyclists just cutting through red lights. I think in a way it's a bit like the voting problem where people kind of rationalize this thing where like, oh, you know, it's individually rational not to vote. But if, you know, if I think that and everyone else thinks that, then no one will vote. Right. But what happens in practice, what happens in practice is that obviously like there's a balance between like for some people, it doesn't make sense to vote and they kind of update their beliefs based on how many people are voting each time, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. It's 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 an equilibrium that's constantly like feeding back on the results that exist. It's not this kind of snowball slippery slope effect. Yeah, it, that's the thing. It doesn't tend to the extremes. It's the balance of individual and collectively rational. And I think the key word you use there is equilibrium. You yeah. basically end up with a series of individual cyclists who have varying risk appetites. They meet varying opportunities to cross red lights, which will yeah. make their journey faster and safer. Yeah. And the fact that maybe one or two of them cross a red light doesn't mean that suddenly everyone's crossing. It's chaos. It's chaos. Cars and lorries are like, why the hell am I following the rules? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's 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 a balance, and and I think yeah, uh, I think that's quite a a, a nice sort of wrap up of that argument. To be honest. So yeah, I think there's a reasonable argument that actually the rules as written just don't apply well to cyclists Mm -hmm. slash pedestrians. You know, in the case of jaywalking, for example, and that it perhaps is better that people focus on being safe and considerate rather than you know following the letter of the law. Cool. We we probably need to wrap up there. We had one final thing, but we'll just leave this as a teaser question: the morality of unforeseen consequences. Are you more morally responsible for an accident if it happens after you've committed a red light violation compared to if you were involved in an accident where you just follow the rules? Does that make the situation worse? Yeah, I'd say generally you are more morally culpable if you have broken a rule and it led to some negative outcome Mm -hmm. but i guess in this case the point is what if actually breaking the rule didn't have an increased chance of creating that of creating an accident versus yeah what if it was irrelevant to it it depends i mean like if it's a near miss because someone swerved because of you then you're probably morally responsible right right that would be a good example of like actually you made a bad judgment call as to whether it was safe to cross that red and then it's not so much an unforeseen consequence but what if the person swerved because they were actually um too early or too late to the red Mm. Mm. then you're both morally culpable (laughs) and and again this comes back to the thing where like as a bike as a cyclist you're risking yourself and as a vehicle you're risking other people which is why it's much the the rules are much more stringent on vehicles as they should be let's wrap it up then and i feel like i know your position but (laughs) yeah i I mean look (laughs) have have you have any of your beliefs changed in the course of uh recording this episode no (laughs) (laughs) they they in fact solidified (laughs) yeah i actually you know it's funny because like we said we i came to this with some hunches and now i actually have the data that confirms my hunches (laughs) (laughs) so uh so in practice your position is that it's it's when it's safe to do so yeah like when you can you should make a judgment call as to whether it's safe i'm not going to say everyone is like necessarily in a good position to make that judgment call but you know i i have i've made good judgment calls today you know if i die in a fucking red light accident in the next (laughs) it's gonna be so ironic Uh, please don't play this at my funeral yeah that's i I wouldn't i wouldn't die from the accident i'd die of embarrassment Touch wood. Um, <laughs> yeah, some wood. Um, no, I think I think that's fair. I, I and I think um, although you know there are times when I'm probably more like or, or less opportunistic than you are. I, I think in principle 
what this episode has sort of shown me is that, you know, one, the data is just super interesting. I think the consequentialist argument stands based on the evidence that actually there are opportunities to be safer. Yeah. That's good. But yeah. I think I think the rules-based one is what I find really interesting because yeah. you're, you're right. The, the key thing here is that the rules aren't really designed with cyclists in mind. And therefore, yeah. I think you want to basically behave with safety first. I don't think anyone could disagree with this. No one listening could say that safety is the priority and being safe is less important than following the letter of the law. Yeah. So I, I mean, think the like, it, it, so taking the example of people who have actually died following the rules because they're next to an HGV at a junction, did they do the right thing or, or would they have been doing the wrong thing to not follow the rules there? Absolutely not. Absolutely so. not. Because the real rule they should be following is be safe. Mm -hmm. uh, your own safety included as well as other people's safety. Mm. Wow. Okay, good time nice. to wrap up. Uh, everyone, going. like, follow. We're all over social media. Welcome to our new other production assistant, Ty, who's working more in the kind of promotion, I suppose. Thank you again to Martha and to Kane. Martha, our production assistant, and Kane, our editor. And thank you to the Dream Factory in Shoreditch for hosting us. And hopefully you'll agree the sound quality is much nicer these days thanks to this new recording booth that we've got. So great stuff. Thank you for tuning in. Obviously, do drive safely. Definitely cycle safely. And yeah. Remember, yeah. this is not an excuse to bomb through red lights. This is, a, <laughs> this, is, this is actually a call to do it carefully. Catch uh, you soon, guys. All the best, guys. We'll be back soon with another episode. Cheers.